today is our final installment in uh, our series that we've been going through for the past eight weeks now. I think today is eight weeks, and, and it's been a series where we've focused on stewardship. What does it mean to be faithful stewards with what God has entrusted to us? And, and our heart in this series is to, to talk through the lens of, of, hey, we are called as followers of Jesus to live out our life in a certain way. And the scriptures have a fair amount to say when it comes to how we manage our resources. And I know that anytime maybe we talk about money in general, there can be maybe some tenseness or some anxiousness that might start, start to form in us, especially maybe in the context of the church. But I just want to assure you that our heart in these conversations is in no way to get more money. We don't want more money. We're not trying to coerce anyone to give more money. Uh, our heart in this series is to be faithful to what we believe the Word of God teaches. And if we do that, if we want to be faithful to what the Word of God teaches, there is simply no way that we can avoid the topic of money and finance. There's just, there's just not. These are some statistics that I'm sure you've heard, uh, but nearly 25% of Jesus' words in the New Testament are about stewardship. One out of 10 verses in the Gospels deal with money. And there are more than 2,000 scriptures on tithing money, possessions, and some form of materials in the Bible, which is twice as many as faith and prayer combined. So if our heart is, hey, we want to be faithful to what the Word of God teaches, we have to talk about money. And our hope in this series has been to provide a, maybe an understanding of what the Bible would call us into of how as faithful followers of Jesus we can live in accordance to God's goodness in all areas of our life, including our finances. And I think up to this point, if you've been with us, we've, we've talked about a bunch of different topics. We've talked about things like debt. We've talked about things like budgeting and having a plan and greed and generosity, all things that I think it's really easy to draw a line from that topic over to our finances. But this morning, we're going to close out this series by talking about a topic that I don't think is quite as easy to connect, or at least it's not the first thing maybe most of us think of when it comes to this idea of stewardship. You see, this morning, we want to talk about the value and importance of work. We want to talk about what, what it means to work and what the Bible would have to say on this topic of work and how work is connected to stewardship and how ultimately we believe that if we are called to be good and faithful stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, we have to talk about work. We have to talk about work. As we're talking about this idea of, of being faithful stewards, I, I know for me, I, I shared last time I had the opportunity to preach, I'm a nerd and I've just started to embrace that in my life. So join me on the process. Uh, I love definitions, nerd, um, but I do. And I find them really helpful. And, and when it comes to steward, I wanna maybe return back to something that we had shared at the beginning of our time together. A steward is simply someone who manages or looks after another person's property. A steward is someone who manages or looked at, looks after another person's property, meaning the things that we oversee are not ours. They're not ours. They're a gift. They're someone else's. And we believe that that is an essential starting point for this entire conversation of stewardship, that the first thing we need to grasp is that the job we have, the money we make, and the money in our bank account is God entrusting us with something not something that we in and of ourselves have done to accomplish on our own. And this idea of stewardship, I think shows up on the very first pages of the Bible. You don't have to go very far in order to start to see this idea of stewardship begin to show up in the scriptures. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter one. We're gonna kind of be jumping around uh, this, this morning in terms of where we're spending our time at. But Genesis chapter one, I think, is, is the starting point that we have to go to. 
If you open your Bibles to the very first page, here's what you'd find. This is Genesis chapter one. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Those are the first five verses of what we have as the Bible. If you were to continue reading throughout the rest of this chapter, you'd see that this kind of creative expression of God only continues. He doesn't just stop here and say, great, we got light, we got day, we're good, uh, creation's finished. He says, no, I'm, I'm going to continue to work and create. And I create the land and the sky, the water masses around it. He creates vegetation and plants and animals. And then finally, there's the pinnacle of all of God's creation. And it's, it's him creating mankind. It's this kind of culminating process. And, and there's this Latin word that sounds way more fancy than it is, but it's called the Imago Dei. And that simply means the image of God. And in the book of Genesis, the only thing that God would say, let us make them in our image, the only thing in all of God's creation to bear his image is mankind. You and I, sitting here today, bear the image of God. This kind of climactic moment in all of his creation. And once creation is done, we see God's character begin to be expressed. He doesn't simply kind of sit back and say, cool. It's done. Let's whatever happens, happens. He also isn't overly protective where he says, you know what? I'm the only one who can oversee what I have created. What we see God do is extend an invitation for stewardship to take place. In Genesis chapter two, verse 15, it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. God creates everything. God creates mankind. And then after that moment, God extends an invitation to man to say, come, oversee that which with, with, with which I have created. Come alongside of me and tend to that which I have created. I think Genesis 2.15 shows us not only the importance and the design of humanity when it comes to work, that there is something at a core level within you and I that work is good, but also this passage shows us how work in and of itself is a primary form of stewardship when it comes to what God has created and done for us. A, a good friend of mine, Dolly Resett, used to always say, you know what, the only thing worse than working is not working. And if you've ever gone through a season of your life where you haven't worked, it's true. When you're working, you're like, uh, are you kidding me? Like the only thing better than working would be to not work. But when you don't have a job, when you aren't able to do that work, and whether that's vocationally or whether there's something physically that's limiting your ability, all of a sudden, I think in all of us, there, there is this thing that exists at a core level that's like, no, there is something good about work. I think work is, again, one of the primary ways in which stewardship is expressed throughout the whole course of Scripture. And it's not an invitation that's done. I think that's the good news. Just like so many other invitations that God would give us, an invitation to be a faithful steward of what he has entrusted to us, it's not as if it ended with Adam and Eve and it's like, okay, well, sorry, we, we're good now. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
Uh, there, there is this thing that's happening in the church of Corinth. Sometimes I feel bad for the church of Corinth because you read those letters and you're like, man, Paul, all you're doing is like laying out some really hard truths for these people. But uh, praise God that, that he didn't let them wander. But in 1 Corinthians, there's this portion where uh, there are these people that are growing and starting to say, you know what? I follow Paul. And then there's another group of people that would say, you know what? I follow Apollos. Essentially, like, let's put that in today's terms. It'd be like our, half of our church splits and, and one half's like, you know what? I follow, I follow Kyle. And the other half's like, no, 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 no. We follow Spencer. And, and Paul comes to them. He writes to them. He's like, man, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Like we simply do the work of watering, but it is God who grows. And listen to what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. He says, for we are co-workers in God's service. Other translations say co-laborers in God's service, that you are the fields in God's building. That, that Paul understands something critical here, that the work that was set before him was continuing to be a faithful steward of that which God had started beforehand. And Paul understands that as we would take on the mantle of embracing what work would look like in our life, we're doing the work of the Lord. That we get to partner and become co-laborers in, in, in what God is doing. I think it's easy to see work as a bad thing, but I don't know how you read through the scriptures and come to that conclusion. We just looked at Genesis chapter one and we saw right away that God is a God who works. Think about that. That, that the God that we worship, the God that we declare is good and holy and righteous, he is not a God who sees work as something beneath him. He does not belittle it. From the moment you open the book of the Bible and start reading about the character and nature of God, one of the things that you first see is that God is a God who embraces work. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that the people of Israel, one of their primary ways of relating to who God was, was through this lens of God being a worker. We see that he's called a gardener in Genesis 2, a shepherd in Psalm 23, a potter in Jeremiah 18, a teacher in Psalm 143, a vine dresser in Isaiah 5, and a metal worker in Malachi and Ezekiel that one of the ways in which the people of Israel understood the character of God was through this lens of our God is a God who works. Our God is a God who does not sit passively by. He is engaged. And if we need any further examples of this, let's look to the person of Jesus. Let's look to the person of Jesus. If we jump into the New Testament, we see this trend continue in the life of Jesus. The scriptures teach us that Jesus is the son of God. And, and if you're familiar with that language or maybe not, I want to just take a moment here that, that, and say that that doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow removed or distant from who God is. Jesus being the son of God is an incredible declaration that our whole faith hinges on. And listen to what Paul has to say in Philippians chapter two. He says, who being in very nature God, this is Jesus he is speaking about. Jesus being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We could spend the rest of our time right here and it would serve us well. We wanna keep moving on. So I just wanna make a note here that Paul is telling us that Jesus is of the same nature, of the same substance, that he is equal to God. When we worship Jesus, we're not worshiping someone else other than the Lord. We're not somehow worshiping someone who is beneath God, that in the person of Jesus, we see the full expression of God. That in Colossians and Hebrews, both of them point to this reality and say something along the lines of that, that Jesus, the son of God, he is God incarnate. He has put on flesh and he 
is the visible image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Look to Jesus. You want to know how God loves? Look to Jesus. You want to know what God values? Look to Jesus. And we see in this passage that, that, that it's not as if this divine nature of who Jesus was was something that he utilized so that his life would be easy. It says he didn't count that equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That Jesus, in him, I think we see the fullest expression of not only what God looked like, but what you and I as followers of Jesus are called to live like. And again, it doesn't take very long looking at the life and story of Jesus to understand that work is something incredibly valuable. He didn't only work in the sense of physical labor, although that was part of what Jesus did. In Mark chapter six, Jesus is leaving one destination all throughout the gospels. You see Jesus like traveling from one place to the next. And we have an instance where this is the case here. In Mark chapter six, verse one, it says, Jesus left there where he was and he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogues and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Is this, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brothers of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? I grew up in a small town in Montana, and uh, it was one of those things that like, everywhere you went, you knew everyone that you interacted with. Right, like you go to the grocery store and you, it's like Saturday morning and your hair's not done and you're wearing the sweatpants and you just kind of like, the bill's low, you don't want anyone to see you. And you walk into Walmart and then your entire neighborhood is standing in Walmart and you're like, oh, hey, hello everybody. Like, it's good to see you this morning. Like, we knew everybody. You knew who the mechanic was, you knew who the school teacher was, you knew who your dentist was and they're trying to ask you weird questions as they're like scraping your teeth and you're like, I can't talk right now. You know what I mean? Like you knew who everyone was in this community. And there's something similar here that's happening. Jesus goes back to his hometown and the people of his community didn't see him as some sort of divine being. They didn't recognize him as the son of God. They said, hey, this is the carpenter. This is the guy that we bought furniture from to fill our house. What is it? Who is this guy? What is he teaching? Where is he getting this authority? But their primary context of knowing him was as a worker, was as someone who put forth effort in what he did. I love this statement and it's found in the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. It says in New Testament times, carpentry and joinery were muscle building traits. Hard physical labor was not beneath the dignity of the son of God. That the cross, the Jesus that we know of, who, whose hands were pierced on the cross as he bore our sin. It was not as if those hands were perfectly manicured. I think it's so easy to get this image of Jesus and it's from some paintings that we've seen. I have one in my mind. I wish I could just like project it so you could see what I'm talking about. But you know those paintings and pictures of Jesus where he's like holding a lamb and like gently petting it. And it looks like he has the most immaculate skin routine known to man. It's like glowing and his hair is just perfectly flowing. It's like Fabio before Fabio was a thing. I don't know if that's what Jesus looked like. I don't know. Because in Isaiah, the prophecy tells us, man, there was nothing beautiful about his form. 
It wasn't as if like he walked into the room and people were like, whoa, who's this guy? But not only that, the work that he had to endure for likely decades as he became a craftsman, the hands that were pierced on the cross were likely hands that were marred by calluses that he bore on himself, not only the weight of the sin and shame, but he bore the weight and the burden of physical labor. Think about that. The God of the universe, and he's tempted all throughout scripture to snap his fingers and have an angel come and kind of rescue him. The God of the universe, think about what that must be like, waking up in the early morning and being like, I've seen all that you can see. I'm the one who created all of this, but I'm gonna get up today and I'm gonna go to work and I'm gonna be faithful in what God has placed before me. Think about the humility that exists. It's hard for me to do that on the best of days, let alone if I were some divine being who at any moment in time I could exercise that, yet we see in the character of who our God is that he did not count equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. The work of Jesus extends past physical labor as well. And I think you and I, our work is more than just the work that God has placed us in vocationally. In John chapter four, verse 34, it says, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who has sent me and to finish his work. That again, I think here we see Jesus exemplifying this idea of work being an expression of stewardship. That Jesus understood that God had initiated something and that part of his coming to be here was to finish the work in which God had started. Again, this, this man who had the opportunity to snap his fingers and have all sorts of things change, this man who was humble enough to get up at the early morning hours and go work hard physical labor is also the same man who did not purchase your and I's freedom, who did not bear the cost of sin and shame in a way that just said, it's done. It was a man who took it upon himself. The scriptures say that, that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might, in, might inherit the righteousness of, of God. That the work of eternal redemption, the atoning work of Jesus was done through hard labor of, of toiling in the spiritual realm. And, and let's look at the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus goes there and wants some support from his disciples and they keep kind of hitting the snooze button and falling asleep. But in this moment, Jesus is asking God, Lord, I know what lies before me. And if there's any way for you to take this cup of suffering from me, please. But he ends each one of these prayers. It says he does it three times. He says, not my will, but your will be done. And while he's in the garden, it tells us that he actually begins to, to sweat blood. I don't know about you, but I, I've, never, I've never been that burdened in my life. I've sweat a lot but never blood. And again, I think this points to the reality that the work of securing eternal redemption for you and I and for followers of Jesus and those who place their faith in him, this further exemplifies that God is not interested in just saying, you know what, the goal in life is for you to get as much income as you can and work as little as you can. That in work, I believe we find such purpose and I believe it is one of the primary forms of expression of stewardship in our life. 
That work is not simply some form of participatory or rigorous obedience. That work is not meant to be punitive or a punishment. That work is a gift from God extended to you and I in order to help build his kingdom here and be faithful with that with which he has entrusted us. I don't know about you, but that's difficult for me sometimes to remember when it comes to this notion of work. Sometimes, man, it can just feel so burdensome, and I I understand that. But I'll tell you, just studying and prepping for this morning, I was in awe of who God was. Over and over again, in him, we find the example of someone who had every opportunity to cash it in. And over and over again, we see that he was a God who went right into that place, faithfully, as a steward of what God has entrusted to him. Again, I believe that work is a gift. I really do, and I think the scriptures would speak of it that way. Here's Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. Now, if, if, if you have time or you're looking for a passage to read in the Bible, just go read Ephesians two, one through 10. I promise you, you're gonna be really encouraged. You're gonna probably be offended first, but then you're gonna be really encouraged by what the gospel would teach us. But this is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. It, it lays out the gospel so clearly, And at the end of this passage in verse 10, it says, for we are God's handiwork. Other translations say that we are God's masterpiece. Again, thinking back to that moment in creation that the pinnacle of all he created. I mean, think I get, man, it's so beautiful being in Missoula and all the mountains and it's so easy to be like, wow, look how beautiful this is. That pales in comparison to the way that the Lord would look at you. That you are his masterpiece. It says that we are God's handiwork, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I I by no means am going to read this verse and somehow try to connect whatever vocation that you find yourself in is like, hey, you know what? That's exactly where God would have you. And that's the exact good work that he would have you do. I don't I don't know what that would look like in your life. And I also know from knowing some of you that we have so many different vocations represented in this room. I know that from knowing you that we have people in the service industry. I know we have people in education. I know we have people in privatized business. I know that we have lawyers and accountants. I know we have students and doctors and dentists and everything in between. And I know, at least I think I know, that not all of us are in love with the work that we get to do. I think that's a fair statement. But again, I think when we start to view work as a gift from God, regardless of the work that he's placed us in, I think that it starts to take on a lot more meaning and a lot more value. As I've, again, studied for this, one of the most astounding things about work is that work is often, especially by the Apostle Paul, referred to as a method in which you and I can witness to the world around us. That as we share the gospel, I think the most primary way that we understand that is like, okay, I'm going to verbally declare the goodness of Jesus. And yes and amen, we need to be doing that in the communities to offer them hope of Jesus. But one way in which Paul constantly refers to in his ministry that he led his life and his example to the people that he surrounded himself with was through the work that he did. He points back to the way that he conducted himself in these settings as ways in which people should remember the gospel and remember what it means to be faithful. I think it was four or five months ago, we received an email from a a, a local business here in town, a a food, uh, it's called a restaurant, a food place? (laughs) Restaurant, that's what it is. Um, We received an email from a restaurant here in town 
And uh, they asked, hey, do you know anybody who needs work? Because we cannot find anybody who will stick around. The people that we hire, I mean, within a week, it's just so evident that there is a degree of unprofessionalism that we have to let them go. And at first it kind of was like, okay, yeah, whatever, email, yep, moving on. But then I like stopped and thought about that for a moment. Do you realize how insane that is? That somebody who by all intents has no connection to this faith community or a faith community at large and finds themselves in a place where they go, you know what? I don't know Jesus, but I know enough about him to know that if the people who follow him really are what they say they are, I bet these people would probably be good in a work environment. That somebody who had no idea of what the gospel looks like turns to the faith community and says, I, yeah, I don't know, but it seems like it might be a better option. What an opportunity we have to show the faithfulness of God simply by being good employees. Simply by showing up to work. Simply by doing our best before we leave our car to take a few deep breaths and settle whatever attitude we might have walking into that space knowing there's going to be hard days. Simply by being kind and not joining in with the gossip happening around us. We have an incredible opportunity through work to witness to the world around us and show them about the goodness of our God. In 2 Thessalonians, the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians is just chock full of this language where Paul kind of witnesses through his work. And, and this is what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. If you're curious what some of that teaching looked like, let's keep reading. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right for such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Can you hear the seriousness with which Paul writes about this idea of work. It is not uncommon for Paul to say, don't associate with these types of people in his letters. But often what we find is on the heels of some of those warnings are people living a life of deep sin. And here we see another similar passage, but instead of this thing that we would view as like, oh man, like we gotta stay way away from that. He says, you know what? Don't associate with people who are idle. He says that three times. Be wary. You know, the example that we lived out when we were among you, we did not take advantage of the things that were around us. Instead, we labored to not be a burden among you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I love this. This is just like so straightened to the point. He says, make it your goal. So if we were to like boil down all that the Bible would teach and be like, okay, so what is the goal of life? 
Here you go. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you. There you go. That's a serious call for the life of a believer. And he goes on, he says, then, once we've done that, as we're doing that, then the people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. That Paul understood something that's so simple yet so profound. That the way that we live our life, I think it's so easy for us to like start to compartmentalize things, right? Like it's okay, my personal life's over here and my work life's over here and my family life's over here and my spiritual life's over here and my recreation's over here. And we compartmentalize all these areas of our life. So when I'm with my family, I may or may not be in my spiritual life. And when I'm over at work, I may or may not be in my spiritual life. Paul is calling us to understand everything you do Everything from managing your finances to how you live your life out in work to the ways in which you communicate, everything you do needs to be drenched with the goodness of the gospel. That, that there is something so profoundly powerful when our life day to day, when I'm at the grocery store, when I'm at work, regardless of where I am, when it's congruent, it's not perfect, it will never be perfect, but when it's congruent to the best of my ability to live out the life of Jesus. There's something so powerful in that space. And again, Paul witnesses to that reality. I think the people who reached out to us and asked for help witness to that reality. That simply by being faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us in and through our work, we can witness to the goodness of God. And I would go as far as to say that we don't have the liberty to compartmentalize our life like that. To say, you know what, Jesus, you're staying home as I go to work. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. We are called in every space of our life to take and walk with Jesus. He's already there. And we get to meet him and have the opportunity to witness to those who are around us. I think it's easy when we talk about physical work to understand it through the lens of all these different professions. But when it comes to spiritual work, often that's reduced of like, oh, okay, so that's the work of the church staff or that's the work of the pastor. I want to tell you unequivocally that is not true. That you have so much potential to make an impact spiritually where you find yourself. I don't work there. We don't work there. The people that you have relationships with, whether you're at work, whether you're in class, our students, our high school and college students, the people who you're rubbing shoulders next to, I don't know. That their example and understanding of Jesus is being shaped and formed as they watch the way you live your life. Is that kind of a big thing to, to recognize and realize? You bet. But what a blessing. What a blessing. That God has given us purpose for the work that he has started. To say, you know what? I could have chose to bring people to me in any way. And one of the ways I do that is through an invitation to you. And I ask you to be a co-laborer of my gospel wherever you find yourself. The way we live our life is so significant. It is so important. And it doesn't have to be reserved for some sort of ministerial elite. I feel like, Jeff, I talk about you, Jeff Powell, every time I preach. And so I'm going to try to work you in here today as well. Uh, Jeff, how long did you work at Boyce? 51 years. <laughs> we'll call it good 25. 
You want to know how many people were blessed by Jeff Powell in 51 years? You want to know the breadth and depth of that man's ministry in 51 years? Do not underestimate the power of where God has you and do not underestimate the value of how you live your life in front of the people you're around. So proud of you, Jeff. So proud of you. This is a huge opportunity that we have before us. And just like anything else in our life, when God would give us a gift, we have the opportunity to turn it into something that it was never intended to be. That work is absolutely a beautiful thing that God has entrusted to us. That work is something that is reminding us how we can carry forward the image of Jesus. And if we aren't careful, work can be something that takes the throne of God away from him that it is so easy to take something that God has entrusted to us, something beautiful, and turn it into an idol. We talked about that a few weeks ago, this idea of idolatry, being worshiping anything or anyone instead of the Lord. That we would find our value and our purpose and our meaning and our fulfillment in something else outside of who God says that we are. That you know what? I am defined by what I do. And I think this is so subtle, and it, but it's everywhere. Like, what's one of the first questions you ask somebody when you meet them? What do you do? And I'm not saying that's a bad question. All I'm trying to say is that is such a primary way for us to understand and encapsulate who someone is. What do you do? Oh, okay, you're this. And when we run the risk of placing our value and our identity and our fulfillment and our security in something else other than God, whether it be work, whether it be money, or whether it be anything else, undoubtedly at some point in time, we will be left totally broken and desolate. I think one of the, the, the things over the last two or three years as, as COVID has come and has shifted our world as we've known it, one of the things that stood out to me the most personally is how much it has torn down this wall of the belief that like I control really anything at all in my life. I wish I did, but in a moment, our lives can be so quickly upended. We don't get to control what the economy does. We, we don't get to control what our health looks like. And the moment that we place our soul identity and our soul value in what it is that we do is the moment that we run the risk. And I believe with my whole heart, inevitably, we'll find ourselves in a moment where everything that we thought about ourselves no longer exists. And we're left asking the question, of what value do I even have? If I'm not doing this, what do I bring to the table? And you see, that's the beauty of our identity in Jesus. Because he says, intrinsically, you have so much value. You are the pinnacle of my creation. You are my masterpiece. And, and if you are a masterpiece, of course you have value. But when we place our identity in something else outside of him, we run the danger of being left bankrupt in our value. In the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, there's this whole section that talks about how we are to remember God's faithfulness in the smallest of things. And it's this warning about how if we don't remember those things, we run the risk of, of kind of understanding or thinking to ourselves that we are kind of the master and creator of our own story. And this is how that passage ends, Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18. It says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God 
for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. And this was so convicting for me. This was so convicting for me because it's so easy to fall into that way of thinking. And we're talking about the value of work. We're talking about how God implores us to work hard. And it's so easy after we've done that to look back and be like, ah, I earned this. Now, again, should we be proud of the way that we can work? Absolutely. But the moment that pride would take us to a point where we think that we are our own providers, that we think that I have the ability in and of myself. I didn't choose the gifts and skill sets he's given me. I didn't choose any of that. So for me to think somehow that this is all of my own doing, man, but it's easy for me to think that way. And all throughout this passage, the author is just kind of imploring the people as you're eating, like, remember, it is God's provision that allowed you to do this. As you're working, remember, it is God's provision that is allowing you to do this, lest we fall into the trap of moving work into a place of idolatry, of achieving something and saying, you know what, I am my own provider. I am the one who can take care of this ourselves that this is such a great reminder to us about stewardship and the importance of understanding as we started. It's not ours to begin with. It is the Lord and him entrusting it to us. Work is so good. I think that work is incredibly godly, but I know that work makes a terrible God. It's not meant for that. Band, you guys can come up. There's a verse in Colossians chapter three, and, and in, this, in this chapter, Paul's kind of talking to different relational groups of people, people who have different roles and responsibilities. And, and one of the people who he identifies in this closing section of, of this chapter is people who would be like, maybe like the working class, people who find themselves in some form of servitude. And he's writing to them as he's written to other people about what it would look like for them to live out according to the role that they find themselves in, in, in a way that, that is in line with the gospel. And here's what he has to say to them. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Whatever you do, work with all your heart as working for the Lord. And look, I said it earlier, I don't pretend to think that all of us find ourselves in a place vocationally where we're like, man, this is exactly where I wanted to be. I get that. I get the challenge that can come. I get the monotony that might exist. But the encouragement that I want to give today is that part of what it means to be a faithful steward of what God has entrusted to us is to show up every day and give our best to show up every single day. And there's gonna be days where I don't wanna be there and there's gonna be days where I wish I was someone else. But don't allow that to take me away from the work that God has put before me, not just a way in which I can gain some sort of financial advantage, not just a way in which I can gain a paycheck, but, but who is God bringing across my path today that I have an opportunity to bear witness about the faithfulness and goodness of God through my work? That might be a coworker. And I know that sometimes those relationships can be really difficult. Maybe you like your job, maybe you don't love the people you work with. What would it look like for us to enter the workspace wherever we're at 
with a focus. You know what, Lord? I believe you're doing something good here. Man, the Bible is so full of stories that you're like trying to figure out like where it's going. And then at the very end, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's why this happened. And the apostle Paul's life, I mean, it's, it's, it's literally all that. It's like he's shipwrecked and then he's over here and then he got bit by a snake and then he, it's like, what is happening? But there's a story in the book of Acts where he's in Philippi and he's meeting with these people and he was supposed to meet with them in, in one place, but they weren't there. So he went somewhere else and he meets this group of women. And then there's this young girl who's like a fortune teller and Paul frees her from that. And then all of a sudden he finds himself in prison and you're like, whoa, what, what's going on? And they're in prison. They're worshiping the Lord together. And there's this incredible move of God and the gates open up and the jailer realizes what's happening in front of him and goes, I'm going to pay for this. And he goes to kill himself. And Paul cries out and he's like, no, no, look, we're still here. And then finally, after all of these wild twists and turns, we see that Paul gets to minister to this family and they all place their faith in Jesus. And they are a part of starting the church in Philippi. Now, look, I don't, I don't hope that you'd never find yourself in a situation exactly like that one, but I have full confidence that you would absolutely find yourself in a place at work and you're going, how did I get here? But you're ministering to someone. You're showing them the goodness of the gospel. And even if it's not through words, although I would encourage that with all of my heart, simply working hard, showing up on time, not joining in in the gossip at work, not stealing from work, not slacking off at work, simply doing those things has such a profound impact in ways that I do not believe we will ever understand this side of heaven. I know that we might not be in love with our job, but I believe wholeheartedly that as, as Ephesians says, that God has prepared in advance good works for us to do. And while it might not be in the exact place that we want, I have no doubt that he is ready to use you. And all we have to do is be ready to be used, to join the work of the Lord as co-laborers in his gospel. Would you stand with me? As we wrap up this series on stewardship, again, I just feel like more and more as I was prepping, I just, what just kept coming to mind is absolutely, as, and how we've talked about it, stewardship is undoubtedly a way in which we can manage our resources. And being a faithful steward of God looks like living out in every area of our life, the goodness of Jesus, every area at work, at school, in our families, in our friends. What it means to be a faithful steward of what God has entrusted to us is not letting opportunities go by where we could have witnessed. And you know why we think it's important to be, have a budget? And we have opportunities to witness through generosity. You wanna know why it's important, why we think stewardship is connect, connected to contentment? Because people recognize the way that we live. What's different? There's something different. And my heart would be that as we wrap this series down, that as a church collectively in every area of our life and absolutely in the area of finances, that we would feel more convinced and more convicted to live out our life according to the will of God. I just wanna pray that over us as we wrap up. Lord, we come before you and we ask for this. Convict us, Lord, challenge our hearts, 
God, help to move us from a place where maybe we just are comfortable. Maybe we're just sitting in a space, Lord, where, where we're afraid even of being used by you, God. Over and over and over again, God, you have shown yourself to be faithful. And I know that there are hundreds of stories in this room right now about how faithful you are, that as we take a step of courage to move our life towards being faithful stewards of all that you have entrusted us, we do not have to worry that it, as we make that step, that it would be somehow something that we would find ourselves without provision, without care, God, that you promise that you will never leave nor forsake us. God, we want to bear witness to the community around us. We want this community of Missoula to be a place where the name of Jesus is known. And whatever role we can play, however we can be faithful stewards of that, Lord, that is our heart. In work, in finances, in relationship, and in every other place of our life, God, we, we just come before you and say, have your way with us. Have your way, Lord. You are so good. We love you, Jesus.